Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello there, and welcome back to our podcast and back to our series of studies called Unstoppable, which is a description of the gospel and the book of Acts. When I was growing up, our church the one that I grew up in in Elizabethton, Tennessee, had two different weeks of revival meetings or evangelistic campaigns every year. Evangelists would come for a week or maybe sometimes two weeks and preach every night. That would happen in the spring and again in the fall. And I can recall the church being full and many nights when the invitation was given, people would be saved. That was an evangelistic tool that was somewhat effective still in the 1950s. And usually, um, one of those sermons would be from Acts 24:25. This was a very popular text for the evangelists to use who would travel across the United States and throughout the South. In the Old King James Version, the verse says that Governor Felix trembled when Paul was evangelizing or sharing the gospel with them. Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Well, it's been a long time since I heard a sermon on that verse, but that's a shame. It's one of the best examples in all of history of the dangers of procrastination. In today's podcast, we'll revisit this famous story. In the meantime, let me say just a word about one of my newer books, The Jordan River Rules. This is a book that I think you'll find useful for your small group studies. We have not only a study guide to go along with it, the study guide was written and prepared by my son-in-law, Joshua Rowe, but we also have a video series so that it's very usable both for personal edification and growth and also for small group or large group usage. It's available at my website, robertjmorgan.com, And I think that you'll enjoy getting into the story of Joshua, chapters 1 through 6. Well, today in this podcast, we are in the story of the Apostle Paul, which occupies the book of Acts from chapter 13 to the last chapter in the book. Now, the story is told in terms of Paul's three missionary tours, followed by his arrest in Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he goes on to Caesarea under military escort. In chapter 23, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, fearing for Paul's safety and wanting to get him out of town before any more riots occurred, had him taken under very heavy escort to Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman city on the Israeli coast built by Herod the Great as the military headquarters for the Roman occupying forces in Palestine. The remains of the city are there today. They're fabulous. 
I usually visit them once a year when we do our tours of Israel, and Paul was evidently kept in the palace in a secure location, the ruins of which you can still see. In fact, if you visit the ruins of Caesarea now, you'll see the foundations of a room in which the archaeologists claim that Paul was kept. And there he stayed for two years as his legal case was pending. I'm fascinated by this two-year period because Luke doesn't tell us very much of what was going on with Paul, except, as we'll see, occasional appearances before Roman officials. We don't have any letters that Paul wrote from Caesarea, although I'm sure that he wrote some. Most scholars think the prison epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written from his house arrest later in Rome at the end of the book, not from Caesarea. So as far as the pages of the book of Acts tell the story, this was a rather quiet period in Paul's, uh, in Paul's ministry. I do have one theory about this. Uh, recently, I ran it by the renowned New Testament scholar, Dr. Craig Evans, and I was very pleased he agreed with me. I believe that during Paul's two years in Caesarea, Luke used this time to do the final research and to write his Gospel of Luke. So Luke was preoccupied with that, and Paul maybe was helping him, or undoubtedly, Paul saw visitors, and he wrote letters, and he rested, and he prayed, and he studied, but little of all of that has been recorded for us. What we do have is an account of Paul's three appearances during that time before Roman officials as his legal case lumbered on. All of that essentially takes us through chapter 23 of Acts. So, uh, I mean, what we've said so far will take us through chapter 23. So today we'll start with chapter 24. Now, in the next couple of chapters, Paul made his case before three men, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. So let's look at his presentation of the gospel before Governor Felix. Chapter 24 of the book of Acts begins by saying, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their church, uh, charges against Paul before the governor. Antonius Felix was the younger brother of a very powerful Roman politician. This brother was the leader of the treasury during the reign of Emperor Claudius. The brother's name was Pallas, P-A-L-L-A-S. And evidently, he secured for Felix the governorship of Palestine or Judea. Felix was not really a good fit for Palestine. He was frustrated in Judea, and he had clashes with the high priest in Jerusalem, whose name was Jonathan, and who criticized him. In fact, Felix had someone hire a group of assassins who surrounded the high priest in the temple and plunged daggers into him during one of the festivals and assassinated him. We know that Felix was married three times. His first wife was named Drusella. She was from Africa and is thought to have been the granddaughter of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Well, while he was governor of Judea, Felix divorced this Drusella and married another woman named Drusella, whom he seduced from her husband. This is the way that Josephus puts it. While Felix was procurator of Judea, 
He saw this Drusella and fell in love with her, for she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. And he sent to her a person whose name was Simon, a Jewish friend of his who pretended to be a magician. Simon endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and marry Felix, and he promised that if she would marry Felix, that she would be a happy woman. Now, this Drusilla was only 16 years old at this time, and so in this passage where she and Felix meet Paul, she would have been a very young bride. Verse 2 says, When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So this Jewish orator representing the Sanhedrin is making his case against Paul before the governor, uh, this man named Felix. Verse 5, Tertullus goes on to say, We have found this man to be a troublemaker. That was the primary charge being made against the apostle Paul. A lot of Christians today are called troublemakers just because of their beliefs. It says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a, ling re, uh, a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And here he is quoting from the book of Daniel, chapter 12. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul continued in verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or... Those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Well, that's the essence of Paul's defense. He simply said they 
uh, may accuse me of being a troublemaker. I will admit that I'm a follower of the one who established the sect called The Way, and it is because of the resurrection that I, know that I am on trial. I did nothing to cause trouble in Jerusalem. Verse 22, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with The Way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. So it would appear here that Paul was uh, treated relatively well with a certain amount of freedom within the confines of the chambers where he was kept in the palace, and there he stayed for two years. Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. This is his second Drusilla, and the one that I talked about earlier, who was very young. She was Jewish, it says, and he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about, as Paul spoke about faith in Christ. Verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Verse 26 adds, at the same time he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Now, Drusilla might have been, she could have been in her early 20s at this time in the story. But notice how this ruler was drawn to Paul and to his message. Now, he did want a bribe, but it seems that he was drawn to this message and frequently would bring Paul up and let's have coffee together, let's have tea together. Uh, Paul, I'd like to hear more about this. And I believe in his heart he knew that what Paul said was true. The name Felix in the Latin means happy, but this man was not happy. I believe he was under conviction. And so he called for Paul frequently and talked with him. And according to this passage, Paul kept four subjects on the table. First was his faith in Christ. Verse 24 again says, Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Knowing as we do Paul's message in ministry, we can infer what he said. He undoubtedly shared his own testimony, how he had been converted on the Damascus Road. And he certainly would have told Felix and Drusilla something of what he had written earlier in the book of Romans when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. He must have described the incredible life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our Lord had been crucified under the authority of one of Felix's predecessors, Pontius Pilate. And all of this had only happened about 25 years before. And I'm sure that Paul explained the importance of the crucifixion of Christ and the impressive evidence for the resurrection. He may have said exactly what he wrote to the Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I know that Paul tried as hard as he could to present the gospel clearly and with boldness. Second, Paul spoke about righteousness. 
Let's go back to the passage, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened as he spoke about his faith in Christ Jesus. Paul talked about righteousness. This has to do with God's expectations for the human race. His nature is holy, and no one can enter his presence or live in fellowship with him or have eternal life, the eternal life that he gives, without perfection of righteousness. And since we are failures in that regard, God himself became a man who died for us and rose again to impute his righteousness to us. Do you know that the word righteous occurs nearly 40 times in the book of Romans? For example, Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Romans 4.13 talks about the righteousness that comes by faith. Romans 4.23 says that God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Romans 5.17 says that those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man Christ Jesus. So I'm certain that these are the kinds of truths that Paul explained to Felix and Drusilla. Third, Paul talked about self-control. Verse 25 says, as Paul talked about, righteousness and self-control. This almost seems like a strange way to evangelize. Paul didn't begin, evidently, by saying, God loves you. That's the way we very often begin our evangelistic messages. And of course, Paul probably did say that at some point. But there is an old saying that you have to get someone lost before you can get them saved. In other words, until people see their own sinfulness, it's hard for them to see their need for a savior. And Felix was not known for his self-control. He was apparently quick-tempered, and he could be ruthless, as we've already seen. He was eager to throw his first wife overboard for a 16-year-old married girl whom he found beautiful. And I have to believe that Paul was as gracious and earnest as he could be in what he said, but I don't believe that he beat around the bush. He must have said something like, the kind of life that God expects and the kind of life he wants to give you is one in which you live with greater self-control. You have to control your reactions and your habits and your moral decisions. And fourthly, Paul talked about the future day of judgment. Verse 25 says he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. All of this reminds me of Paul's message in the city of Athens in Acts 17, when he said, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Revival preaching, evangelistic preaching, never bypasses the coming day of judgment, which is the most frightening event facing the human race. 
all unsaved humanity will stand before the great white throne of God to hear their eternal sentence and to receive their eternal condemnation. Verse 24 is very interesting. It says, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And the Greek here, word here is very strong. Felix was terrified. This got all over him. This gripped his heart. This took away his peace of mind and his good night of sleep. He was terrified by the implications of what this prison evangelist was telling him. But what did he say? He said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. I will call for you at a more convenient time. Are there any words in the Bible more tragic than those? It's probably the clearest case of condemnation by procrastination in all of the scripture. Felix put it off. He wanted to wait for a more convenient season. How many people have said that? People say, I know that I need help with my spiritual life, but I'm not ready. I'll do it later. I'll call for you at a more convenient time. When a person says this, they're very likely pronouncing their own death sentence. They're like a man with a cancerous tumor telling the doctor, I don't want to deal with it now. I'll come back at a more convenient time. They're like a woman in a car wreck telling an emergency worker, come back later when it's more convenient. They're like the captain of a sinking ship telling the Coast Guard, I'm not ready for anyone to be saved yet. Come back after a while, come back later. And verse 27 says, when the two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, as I said, we know very little of what Paul did during those two years. He was resting, studying, praying, counseling people who came to see him, evangelizing the soldiers in the palace, maybe writing letters that we no longer have, maybe encouraging Luke, who was almost certainly researching and writing the Gospel of Luke. But Felix was recalled to Rome because of his mismanagement of his governorship in Judea and because of his brutality towards the Jews, and many historians believe that he died of tuberculosis. One of the sorrows of my life is the number of people who have reacted as Felix did when I shared Christ with them. One man, more than any other, is on my mind. I can still see him today as I tried to talk with him on his deathbed about the Lord Jesus, and he simply squeezed his eyes and shook his head and waved me away. The Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, and the unrighteous man their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I had a good friend named Jonathan Yandel, who's now in heaven. He was a third-generation preacher who gave me a book by his father, Pastor Larkin Yandel. Well, Larkin's father had been an old-time evangelist. His name was Elsie Yandel. And one week... Elsie had a series of evangelistic meetings beneath the Bush Arbor in eastern Oklahoma. It was outdoors under this arbor that the meetings were held and the people sat on crude wooden benches. 
On Thursday night, a family came in a wagon pulled by mules. The woman and the children came in and found a place to sit. It was crowded, but people got up and gave her and the children a place to sit. But her husband refused to come into the meeting. He stayed out by the mules. The woman was gloriously saved. And this family came like this every night. And each night the lady came to the altar. The first night she came to be saved, but the other night she came to pray for her husband, but he stayed outside. On Sunday night during the invitation, Mr. Yandel felt impressed to go out and to talk to the man by the mules during the invitation, and he begged him to give his life to Christ. But the man was rude. He said, Preacher, you got my woman up there and made a fool out of her, and you're not going to make a fool out of me. Well, my dear sir, said Yandel, I'll be praying for you. And he went back into the meeting under the arbor, and he went to the altar to pray with those who had come forward. But as he was praying with someone, there was a man tapping him on the shoulder. It was a worker in the meetings. Brother Yandel, the man you were talking to out there by the mules, he has fallen to the ground. Yandel ran out to see about him, and the man was lying on the ground as dead as a doornail. We never know when our days and hours and minutes are up. And when people are mule-headed about the Lord Jesus Christ, well, there's a Bible verse that says, He who being often reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without warning. It's always dangerous to say, like Felix did, I will call at a more convenient season. There's no indication that he ever called. And if you're listening to my voice now without knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to remind you of the gospel and of the importance of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. The Bible says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. I urge you to take the story of Felix personally and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ now while there is still time and while you still can, there will never be a more convenient season. Well, you can give your life to the Lord by simply placing your faith in Him, confessing your sins to Him, and asking Him to come into your heart and to be the Lord of your life. What a wonderful decision that so many people listening to this podcast have already made, and I hope that it will be true for you as well. Well, please check out all of our resources at my website, robertjmorgan.com. And thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. Music is by Elijah Rowe. And may the Lord be with you and bless you all until we meet again. Mm -hmm.